From executive search to talent strategy, leadership development, rewards and succession planning, Corn Ferry can help you realize the full potential of your people. So you can take your business where it wants to go. Up. Learn more at cornferry.com slash up. Keith Olbermann, you know him from ESPN if you watched SportsCenter in the 90s or from his career as a commentator on MSNBC. This week on Game Plan, we're talking about his drama-filled career where he got fired and rehired and apparently burned bridges along the way. Rebecca Greenfield, a reporter at Bloomberg, where I cover workplace culture. And I am Sam Grobart. I am a writer at Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. So Keith Olbermann's career from the beginning was filled with drama. Yes, from day one, essentially. Yeah, when he worked at UPI Radio, he was almost fired. And the only thing that saved him, according to a New Yorker article, was his guild. Oh, well, that's helpful. Yeah. But he's continued this pattern quite successfully of going places, being very successful, and then getting very fed up, frustrated, some contention with his bosses, and bolting. Yeah, do we think it's useful to just give like a quick rundown of the firings and hirings? Should I mean, we, take a look we don't here? have to do all of them. No, no, no. Here, I can pick out some of the highlights. So here we go. In 1992, Olbermann joins ESPN. He's there for five years when he leaves acrimoniously in 1997. He then goes over to MSNBC, but leaves there two years later in 1999 when he joins Fox, but he's fired from there in 2001. In 2003, he goes back to MSNBC, but he's suspended from MSNBC in 2010 and leaves in 2011. In July of 2013, he goes back to ESPN. He leaves that network for the second time two years later. Right. So what's crazy, besides that he's boomeranged around these various companies, is also the stories that have come out of this. When he left ESPN that first time in 1997, there's a famous quote saying he didn't burn bridges, he napalmed them. Ooh, like a cool guy. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when he left Fox, I believe Rupert Murdoch, said he fired him because he's, quote, crazy. As opposed to all of the incredibly sane people that Rupert Murdoch has kept in his employ. Yes, good. Really great point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that Ailes guy. Yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. Steady. Probably, yeah, Olbermann is is to the left of Rupert Murdoch, and I maybe that's why he thought he was crazy. Yeah, maybe that contributed <laughs> a little bit to it. Um, but, but yeah, apparently yeah. hard to work with. And I guess the question is this. Yeah. Is he, you know, should he be sort of um, lambasted or feared as a difficult person or should he be sort of uh, lionized for basically not giving a damn in a good way and saying, I'm going to do what I do. I'm really good at it. If you got a problem with that, you can take this job and shove it and finding another place where he can continue to apply his craft. Yeah, as we were talking about this, I definitely had a little bit of, oh, maybe he's my work hero. Right. (laughs) Maybe Keith Olbermann is sort of like what we all wish we could be, which is apparently permanently employable. Yes. Obviously very well compensated. And with the kind of courage of his convictions to leave a place when he starts to feel like things are going south for him. Yeah, and he obviously is good enough to get hired back from these same places. That's what's crazy. It's not like he's just jumped and jumped and jumped and jumped. He's right. he's so good in some ways that ESPN or MSNBC want to have him back, even after reports of this friction. 
Because whether he's employee of the month or the world's worst co-worker, the fact remains Keith Olbermann is a singular talent in broadcasting, and that presumably affords him second and third chances that most of us would never get. Yeah, that's what we're going to talk about with him today. Keith is here with us. He's our guest. He has a new web series out with GQ. It's called The Closer, and we're going to talk with him about that latest comeback and his bumpy road to success. So why don't you start, Keith, by telling us about your latest role at GQ? Um, about August 28th or so, I got a call from an editor at GQ named uh, Jeff Gagnon, who had an idea that was similar to one I did, which was we it'd be a good idea if I was doing commentary on the campaign. Yeah. And I think 10 days later, we posted the first of them, which is not quite the record in my career for getting something started, but uh, we posted a, a piece called 176 Reasons Donald Trump Should Not Be Elected or Cannot Be Elected or however it has various titles, which has been in the following 10 days or so seen somewhere around three and a half million times. So you made the decision so quickly to take the job. Yeah, because it was we knew going into this at both ends of it that there was going to be learning curves for both GQ and for me. But on the other hand, they weren't going to hold the election until we were settled and ready to go. And and I, I had talked to a lot of people about doing something like this. And most of them were just, well, we're at the cutting edge of new media and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. But we can't move quickly or anything. How about in January? And it's like, well, look. In January, maybe these commentaries won't be necessary or legal by then. So it's one of those two <laughs> right. options. I'd like to just get on the air with it. Can we just get on the air? And these, these guys had the same idea I did, and the premise of it was similar to mine, which was, let's do it. Let me ask you another question based on the experience you're having right now. Do you yeah. think this is the future of people like you and the work that you do, which is to say mm – -hmm not necessarily being tied in a very formal sense to one large entity, but you do GQ through the election, then you do something else for someone else, you know, by January, and you just kind of... It could go in that direction. Let me put it to you this way. This is why I am i don't have a distinct answer for it, apart from the fact that I can't see it clearly yet, and I don't think anybody can. The first thing that was burned into my psyche when I started in the business the first two major national television organizations I worked for did not exist the day I graduated college, nor the day I started in broadcasting. I started at network radio in New York. So I was, you know, already third or fourth level of the business. These places didn't exist. I've been on the air longer than ESPN. And that was the place I'd have the most success, except for CNN, which didn't exist, and MSNBC, which was... 17 years away from existing. So you have to adjust to it if you're somebody who's working in the industry. And, and this is, you know, the possibility that, that you have a brand and then you marry your brand or date your brand to somebody else's brand is absolutely a possibility. And certainly we're doing that right now. Your career seems particularly well suited for that. Because I changed a lot over the years, <laughs> yeah, or because well, yeah, so I don't you've have already any tattoos <laughs> with uh, with logos of yeah. companies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're not particularly loyal to a specific company. Um, you've also no, no, no. I'm mass. always loyal when I'm there. <laughs> don't, don't you know? I am actually a tremendous team player. It's one of the unfortunate things you can't really convince anybody of. How many teams have you played for? Yeah, but I was a team player for <laughs> all those teams. But go ahead. I'm sorry. To well, you've you've amassed a large audience already. Yeah, um, it's five and a half million as of the first six commentaries and one interview, which is a lot. Yeah, from a from a, from a know, dead stop. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, we just, we, there was nothing. This did not exist on Labor Day at all. Yeah. That, I mean, we're trying to build an audience. It's a really hard thing to do when you're just some people. Have you always had that view on your career? Like, I'm going to build an audience for me. I'm in this for my own personal growth. Only in the sense of that old philosophy that is, if it does not interest you, it cannot possibly interest the person you're talking to. In other words, I never associated the salary with the work or how much effort I should put into it or what it should look like. And I never, I mean, the venue is sometimes important. You reflect to some degree who you're working for, and there are rules in some places that don't exist in others. I always thought that I had a, a, uh, an obligation to myself more than anything else to do it in a way that matched my standards. And I would often get into conflicts with management places that didn't have the same standards. And I would be saying, I don't think we should do this. I don't think it's journalistically correct. And then they would say, well, you don't make that decision here. And I would say, well, I do make one decision here. And then it'd go to somewhere else. If you're working just to be on, so you can say at the end of the day, oh, I work for such and such, forget it. I mean, there, there will be trained artificial intelligences who can take that job. You will be competing with a machine that, is, that never stumbles on the air. And I mean, if you're just going to be a voice, if you're going to have a set of codes and a point of view, I think no matter what the medium turns out to be, even if we're speaking telepathically to the audience eventually and there's no equipment <laughs> required except a small chip here in one of your teeth, that will always be in demand. And it will also, if you stick to that, it will also be every work experience will be valuable in some way. You talk about the relationship that you've had with some of your employers, how you will disagree. You have the option to leave. Obviously, you have done that. Mm -hmm. Was that always true for you from the beginning? Or did you come into that understanding later on in your career? And if so, mm. what was that education? I, I was also like this as a child. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I tell you, this is very interesting because my father, who had one full time, two full time jobs in his life and the rest of his career worked freelance, said to me once when I was leaving, my first job was at United Press International. That's how old I am. And when I left, the guy said, why are you leaving? I said, because the way you treat the younger people here, the place isn't going to exist in 10 years. And he said, oh, what do you think? There will always be a UPI. Within 10 years, I was on TV and he was managing a restaurant in Katona, New York. Anyway. True so, story? Yes. Wow. And he's a great guy, too. But there just wasn't a job for him. And he also, it was, he had enough of radio. So he left and, and was a manager. And I was going to leave, and I had two choices, and I wasn't sure because this – it was UPI. It had been – in its two originators of United Press and News International it had been around since the 19th century. And the place I was going to had been around for 16 months. And it was more money and sleeker studios and less work, and, and it was a brand-new thing. And it's like a young adult audience and all the rest of that. And I still had a little hesitation in doing it. My father said, this is the first job you've ever been offered? And I said, no. He said, what was that other thing last year that you didn't take that, you, that they wanted you to go to Boston? I said, okay. He said, so that's, you had the one you got, the one in Boston, and this. That's three. I said, yeah. He said, how old are you? I said, I think you should know this. And he said, how old are you? I said, I'm going to be 22 next month. He said, so you think these are the last three jobs you're ever going to be offered? And I said, no. He said, then what are you worried about? This doesn't work. Get something else. By that point, I'd already had more jobs than he'd had, so I don't know where this wisdom came from, but it's always stuck with me. And I just think that's a good way to operate. And many people can't. 
but I don't criticize them for doing so. I don't think I'm better than they are. I'm I'm either smarter or much much <laughs> stupider, and and it's probably both. And it's probably also just a set of circumstances that I just I've never never sought security, and I've never wanted to compromise in exchange for security. And that often comes across as he's oh, a bad employee. In that sense, yeah. I mean, you're going to you're going to get what you get. And I am going to do what I think is appropriate. And trust me, I have compromised a thousand times. It's not I don't. It's not I won't. It's this is fine. These first 2,500 compromises are fine. Number 2,501 is where I draw the line. Yeah, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, some people do have to compromise and some people are risk averse for other reasons. And maybe I don't know if you believe this, but do you think it's also particular to the profession that you or we are in where all these things we're talking about, about building a brand and skills are transferable yeah. and yeah yeah right the advantage is that you are likely to rise in this in any kind of medium format and any kind of media format based on whether or not you have a personal appeal to the audience and it's not it's not well we like generic announcer number 32 and he fits the, he's the new generic announcer number 32 it's not a character that's written for you you know it's not uh elizabeth my old friend elizabeth montgomery's husband on bewitched who suddenly was a different guy in September. And it, you know, it was like, no, no, there's nothing. All the characters are behaving like there's nothing wrong here. He's just regenerated like Doctor Who. But, you know, that's fine. It's not like that. You are yourself, and that is that is the brand. And the other thing I would point out in my defense in terms of this, it, it's not strategy, just it's a reflection of my personality. Mm-hmm. I have had, let's see, my, my national television employers have been CNN, ESPN, MSNBC, and Fox and current, if you want to count that. The current doesn't exist anymore, so that's not possible. Four television networks that I've had some success at, and I've gone back to work a second, and in one case, a third time with three of them. So I went back to MSNBC, I went back to CNN, I went back to ESPN, and it wasn't me going, can I please come back? It was a mutual decision. So there is, in all the sort of wanderlust quality to it, Right, you know, it's not very usual that you go back to a former employer, especially when you have a reputation of you know, burning down bridges. It's like that. It's just that's just for show, so that when you leave someone, it's like I didn't like that girlfriend anyway. It's the business equivalent of that. Up happens when the power and potential of every employee and leader in your workforce is released, and Corn Ferry can get you there by aligning your people to your strategy, attracting, developing, engaging, and rewarding them to reach new heights. With Corn Ferry, you get a partner who truly understands people, leadership, and the new landscape of work. A partner who knows how to take your business up. Learn more at cornferry.com up. Do you ever think back on the different places that you've worked and wish that- Try maybe, to remember them? Right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Do you ever um, have any, any regrets or wish that oh, maybe- yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. My going back to work for ESPN the second time was principally to change the ending of that experience. Because I did not think I had behaved particularly maturely, and I thought looking and particularly reading about how it was seen 20 years later, that there needed to be a different ending to it. And I think I succeeded at accomplishing that. I would never go back and say that the opinions that I took my stances on were wrong, but there was absolutely no reason for me to have done certain things about them, like in a couple of cases going public, certainly you know, the 12, 13-page memos that I would slip under my boss's door before going home at midnight, 
probably were unnecessary. And they look at this thing and they go, we hate this guy. This is really well written. And it's just, it's a mixed message. I could have just had a conversation. And that was largely why I went back there. And there are other cases where you sit there and you learn from it. If you don't learn from something constantly, I mean, there are mistakes I made in at, at ESPN the second time that I learned from. And I was, you know, 56 years old when I was, uh, when that show ended. Um, and there were mistakes that they made, too, which they may or may not have learned from. See, I'm still doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as someone, I'm younger, younger than both of you. And if I want to learn something from you and, you know, you're talking about doing what you believe in and sticking mm-hmm. to your conscience. But now you're saying that there are also things that you shouldn't have done. And you could have acted more mature. So yeah, what advice would you give? Never put it on paper. Yeah. I mean, that's a good uh, that that sounds like either paranoia or a cliche, but it's it. There's a permanence to it that you may not be intending as you write it. And this also goes for texts and emails. We just use paper generically. You may not want it to be preserved forever in a large mainframe under the Kremlin. I mean, you don't know where that's going to be. And I always, as the longer I got into it, the more computer materials came in, the more I began to think, is it a good idea? And I would type all these memos on my home computer and just print them out. But even then, it's something that you would say and then you go, well, no, that's not exactly what I meant. It's gone. Right. And there's no reason to, that's the easiest one. It's just don't, just sit down and say, here are my reservations. And if you if you read from note cards or you read from what it is that you had written in anger, and the other one is always, if you can wait till tomorrow to do it, wait till tomorrow to do it. Those are the two simplest things. And the only other general advice in terms of, of succeeding, that there's two things I always heard. One of them is becoming less and less important. But the first one is, if you want to go and be involved in media in some way, you have to be able to do everything. You have to be able to be in print. You have to be able to be on in the spoken form in one way or the other, podcast, radio, internet, whatever. And you have to be able to be on video, on camera in some way, and be able to at least press the button to record the video. You must do all of these things. And, you know, that's, that's it, it's, if there's another dimension that we haven't thought of yet, learn how to do that too. Snapchat. You yeah. guys right. got to right. get on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> another question I have was that despite all of the turmoil that you've had at other at some of your jobs, are you happy with your career? Yes. Oh, I I achieved everything I intended to achieve at least 15 years ago, possibly longer. Everything that I had set out, and I, I literally, other kids had daydreams of, I don't know what, being Donald Trump or something. I don't know what the, the average daydream was for a kid of, of my age in the 70s. But I actually thought, gee, maybe it'd be great if there was an all-news television station and an all-sports television station, and I'd like to work for them both. And I'd like to be involved in the baseball broadcasts, and I'd like to cover the Super Bowl, and I'd like to, if it's plausible, I'd like to get involved in the presidential uh, inauguration process. Well, by the, by by 2009, I had hosted all of these things, including a World Series between the two New York teams, which was by itself a dream. I hope I lived to see that. I was literally standing on the field at Yankee Stadium introducing Game One of the World Series when it suddenly dawned on me that if I did not stop talking, they would not get to play. <laughs> I was to introduce the PA announcer, Bob Shepard, who would then introduce the players if I just kept talking. I was holding up this World Series. It was a great, powerful moment. As long as you understand, you have to relinquish that (laughs) fanciful power immediately. So I got everything done. So yes, absolutely. No question of it. When you start a new job, do you start it in a particular way? I'm I'm asking this. I'm thinking in my position, which is sort of very mid-level. I come into a new job. 
I kind of lay low for a little yeah. while. Yeah, yes, yeah. And then I sort of figure out what's what. An hour or two, yes. Okay. Before breaking any heads, yes. No, that would be the that would be the assumption. It's it's an organic part of the process. You can't know where everything is. You can't know who everybody is by name. You have to have help. Very often, going where's the door in this room? I know I, there is one. I came in, but you 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 will absolutely need to be guided around for a long period of time, and it, that's a good time to be a little less obstreperous, because the, otherwise they'll just leave you and they'll tell you that the studio is over here when in fact that's the closet and you're you're late for the show. So yeah, there there is to some degree a, a sort of toning down. You do have to go and correct people's impressions. The one thing, unfortunately, about having a reputation, whether it's is the greatest person in the world or the worst, some large percentage will have a, a ridiculously wrong impression of you. When I went to work for Fox in 1999, I noticed when I'd go through the hallways and say hi to people, they looked surprised. And some of them, as I'd be coming down a hallway, you'd see two guys chatting, and suddenly they'd stop talking to each other and put their heads down. And just sort of walked past me. I was like, what in the hell did I do? And I found out only at about six or eight weeks in that literally one of the very few true idiot bosses I ever had had put out a memo saying, do not talk nor look in the eyes of Keith Olbermann unless he has spoken to you first. I was like... What? Why were? I mean, you could, lots of things you could accuse me of in a workplace, but not wanting to talk to the people I worked with was certainly not one of them. And I, this went on for six weeks to the point where I was getting paranoid. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there's always an adjustment period, but but you have to go in and make sure people have a fairly good opinion of you before you start spending that in any way. Yes. Yeah, I imagine that's gotten even harder for you as as you've had more of a reputation as your career has gone on. In one sense, in other words, the baggage will seem larger, but if you don't act like the baggage, that point gets across to the relief of the people that you're working with much faster. It's like, he didn't hurt anybody on the first day. It's like, I'm not, you know, it's not that at all. That's that. You, I never, I never, never have been my reputation to colleagues or people who would be below me on the food chain. It's my employers that I've always treated that way. <laughs> And I think they would even say that. And that's, you know, I think that's part of the responsibility. You're supposed to punch up at the office. And you spend many times it's been on in the, in the behalf of people who did not have the kind of freedom that I described to you before. It's like, you know, people who have three mortgages and they have to keep this job. And it's like, well, I don't care one way or the other. I'll just, I'll stick my neck out. I don't care. It grows back, but it doesn't grow back for everybody. One last question I have is, have you ever been scared that you wouldn't get another job again? Uh, the, the thought occurs every once in a while. I do remember a time I was fired from a job and I was reinstated two days later because the boss can't fire you just because you're 21 and he's drunk. <laughs> but in th that initial period of time, it's like I've been fired from my first job and I, it's, it doesn't pay a lot. And I need $485 for my studio apartment at 50 fifth and second and I'm going to have to go sell blood now. That's 1980. I don't think I've really had that feeling since then. And one of the more interesting things is every time the industry evolves into something else, mutates, I think is probably a better word, there's a certain group of people who are grandfathered in. And now that I'm old enough to be a grandfather, it's literally true that as, say, the studio sports news show deflates into something people don't need on cable, there are a few people who, are, who they'll still watch. Bob Costas, uh, Tony Kornheiser. Me. Well, I'm, I'm on, I got under that wire. I'm somehow in the, yeah, okay, I remember him. 
from my childhood or my father's childhood or whatever. I mean, I literally, it's like, oh, yeah, I used to watch you. It's, Press Secretary of the United States, or the White House, said to me the other day that he used to watch me on doing sports when he was when he was a kid. It's like, oh, for God's sake! So, so yes and no. You have the, anybody in a performing position whatsoever is always worried about that. But on the other hand, it seems like I've I've sneaked into some sort of permanent stature where people at least will, will tune in to laugh, even if I don't want them to laugh at that particular moment. So yeah, that seems like a nice luxury that you've. Built that, built it up. It's a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us about your career. This was really interesting for me. And for me, thank I'm you. Glad. I hope so. And I hope that any, if anybody's still listening, I hope it was interesting for them too. We do too. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. News you can use from a multi-millionaire legendary television and radio broadcaster. That being said, I do think that there were some lessons to be taken from that conversation that actually do apply to anybody in the workplace. Yeah, I felt a little inspired. Yeah, no, I'm I'm ready to go out there and, you know, start kicking ass and taking names. Yeah. I mean, yeah, being in it for yourself a little bit seems like a good lesson that Staying everyone true your, in their career could use. Sure. Stay true to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Follow your dreams. That's the Keith Olbermann way. That's right. He said he reached his dreams like 20 years ago. We should all be so happy. <laughs> By the way, I did the math then, and I realized that he reached his dreams younger than I am now. We're failures. Although maybe this is my dream. Yeah, come on. Well, if you put it that way. <laughs> all right, and now it's time for our favorite part of the show, Half Baked Takes. Half Baked Takes. Half-baked takes are our not fully formed opinions about the world at work and not. So what's yours, Sam? Mine has to do with the business lunch, and it also has to do with what to order at the business lunch. The trick here is you want to pick a dish that is easy to eat, and that generally means food on fork, fork in mouth, clean release, repeat. So the brisket sandwich with extra jus does not fit into this description. What does fit into this description? Two words, chopped salad. Okay, I, I get that. I get it. It's like a first date. It is like a first date, and you have to look good. But are you going to get the rack point? of ribs? No, Come on. But it's being paid for by your work. So like, if there's a lobster roll on that menu. Lobster salad. Okay, I do love lobster salad. There you go. I'm not saying you got to cheap out here. You could do the steak salad with prime rib on top, but you have to get something that's been cut up for you and that you can just kind of poke at, almost like you don't even have to look down. You just know you're going to get like manageable amounts of food in your mouth. All right. I, I Okay. Okay. My half-baked take is that I think it's okay to use your phone during meetings. That is such a super troll. Well, that's kind of the point of takes, you know, right, to get man. people riled. All but, right. you know, meetings take up a lot of time. Everybody knows that they're too long. They waste a lot of time. I um, think that I can be engaged in the meeting and also sometimes check my email because your meeting stinks. I will always be offended at you if and when you do that. Is this a generational thing? I don't think it it's is. It's like, you know, all not... my friends have their phones out during dinner, so I'm used to it. Nah, that ain't right. <laughs> That's not right at all. Well, maybe your meetings should be better. I don't have meetings. Let me tell you right now. So don't look at me. So the solution is no meetings. Well, that would be nice. But I got to tell you, I will meet you halfway, which is to say a discreet under the table kind of check. Yeah, just to see what's up. I understand that. I have an Apple Watch. Oh, okay. That makes you better than the rest of us. I mean, actually, 
<laughs> and I mean, yeah, that's actually the, one of the benefits of it. In a meeting, you can just kind of be like, oh, what's up? Oh, okay. Mm. Um, okay, so the solution, everyone gets Apple Watches. No, let's cool. not do that. I don't want to talk about my Apple Watch. That's weird. <laughs> All right, I, I will compromise with you. I think that discreet, almost under the table, like at least make the effort to yeah. try and hide it. Be cool about it. Yes. I'm obviously cool about it. There are some people, though, who will basically just like put the phone out at the middle of the table, like lean on yeah. the table. That is rude. And that to me is just, that's not that's acceptable. That's like your time is not worth my time. Right. But that's kind of what I'm saying, though. Do me the courtesy, <laughs> at least, of, of trying to look like you know it's wrong. Ugh. All right. This has been Half-Baked Takes. Half-Baked Takes. Thanks for listening to another episode of Game Plan. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at RZ Greenfield. And you should check out Keith Olbermann's new web series, The Closer, over at GQ. And I'm Sam Grobart. You can find me on Twitter at Sam Grobart. See you next week. Adios. Get the most from your people and send your business soaring with Corn Ferry. From executive search to talent strategy, leadership development, rewards, and succession planning, Corn Ferry knows up is more than a direction. It's your future. Learn more at cornferry.com slash up. Give me a B-52. <laughs> give me a B-52. You're not feeling well, but we're going to give you a pill. <laughs> it's going to make you go from healthy to ill. Ha-ha! You're really good at that. Thank you. <laughs>